This morning we're going to begin looking together at the book of Romans. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, probably written while he was in the city of Corinth, around AD 57, and that might not mean anything to you, but what it does mean is that this letter was written near the end of Paul's life, towards the very end of his missionary journeys. And although we're going to see that this letter is written to specific people in a specific place, although that's true, it is also Paul's summary of the Christian message. Romans is his longest letter, and it gives us the fullest statement of the truth Paul has been preaching for decades. And because of that, for 2,000 years, people have been turning to Romans to get at the heart of the Christian message. It's also the place where many people have found the most comfort and the most encouragement for living as Christians and persevering as Christians. That's quite a rare combination. To find a book that sets out the truth in such careful detail and that also can warm our hearts and fill our hearts. Tim Keller says that digging into the book of Romans prompts us to say, not only this is true, but also this is wonderful. The truth that we find here in Romans is truth that can grab our heads and our hearts. It's truth that can change us in a deep and a lasting way. And as we start out this morning with Romans, I think it'll be helpful to have some idea of where we're going. So let me give you a little roadmap of what's ahead of us. This is how I've broken the letter down into chunks. Don't worry too much about remembering any of this. It's just to give you a sense of what is in the letter. Paul's subject in Romans is the gospel of God. We're going to see that this morning. We'll look at his introduction to the gospel. Then there are five main sections of this letter. First, Paul is going to answer the question, who needs the gospel? Is it for good people? Bad people? Weak people? Then he'll answer the question, what is the gospel? We use the word, or at least we've heard the word, but what exactly does it mean? Then Paul will go on to talk about life and death. Not so much physical life and death, but spiritual life and death. What does that mean for today? What does it look like today? What does it mean for the future? Then Paul deals with what I'm calling the justification of God. He deals with the fact that in the Old Testament, God chose Israel. And God made big promises to Israel. But then Israel seemed to reject Jesus. And now most Christians in the world are not from a Jewish background. So what does that mean for the Jews? And even more importantly, what does that mean for God? 
Did God's plans fail with the Jews? Has God gone back on his promises? Is he a God who sometimes has to admit that plan A didn't work, so it's time for plan B? Or to put it another way, is the God of the Bible a God who sometimes backs the wrong horse? Paul is going to face those questions head on in chapters 9 to 11. Then the next main section deals with living the new life. Or we could call it living the gospel life. What does that look like day to day? And finally, there's the conclusion of the letter. So that's our roadmap. Seven sections. And just to prepare you, we will not be covering those in seven sermons. But it will not be 70 sermons either. In fact, I can tell you it will be closer to seven than to 70, if that helps. But there is plenty for us to discover in this letter, and we want to catch as much of it as possible as we go through this. And so this morning, we're going to look at Paul's introduction to the gospel of God. And if you haven't turned there yet, it's page 1128, or in the large print, 1744. I'll read verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you are also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome." 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is God's word. Imagine for a moment that you are Paul and you're sitting down to write a letter to the people of Rome, to men and women living in the capital of the Roman Empire, men and women living in the place where Caesar is Lord and is referred to as Lord. How do you begin your letter? How do you introduce it? You know already that the main body of your letter is going to be the core truths of Christianity. But how do you start? You start by talking about power. These Christians live surrounded by the visible power of Rome. Rome has conquered the world. Rome rules the world. And so Paul begins his letter with the issue of power. Who has it, really? Where is it focused, really? And those questions are equally important for us, I would suggest. The Roman Empire is long gone. But you and I are still surrounded by visible powers. The government, the media, We're surrounded by influential voices that seem able to sway public opinion whatever way they choose. So this is a live question for us too. Where is the power today? Really? In verse 1, Paul introduces the topic of the letter, the gospel of God. That's what Paul's life is set apart for. That's what his life is devoted to. Gospel means good news. That's important because the gospel is not advice. It's an announcement. It's a declaration of something. Last week, at the very end of 1 Samuel, we were told about the gospel the Philistines were announcing. When King Saul died... We were told at the end of 1 Samuel that the Philistine leaders sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news. In the Greek Old Testament, it says literally to proclaim the gospel. And the gospel that the Philistines were proclaiming was the gospel of Saul's death. As far as they were concerned, that was good news that was to be shared. Well, here in verse 1 of Romans, Paul says, the good news I have to share is the good news of God. And Paul will spend the whole of this letter setting out that good news for us. But here, to these Christians in Caesar's city, Paul wants them to grasp right away that the gospel of God is good news about the power of God's Son. 
Even today, if something has deep roots in history, we realize that it carries weight. When we lived in the U.S., I had an Old Testament teacher who told me about a trip that he took to the British Museum in London. And when one of the attendants at that museum realized that my professor was an American, he said to him, Ah, in search of history, are we, sir? Here in the UK, we tend to take our long history for granted. But in general, I think Americans are much more excited by history because they just don't have so much of it. Even if you're not a history enthusiast, it's hard to visit Westminster Abbey, for example, or Parliament and not be impressed by the weight of history that lies behind those places. History gives substance. And Paul knows that Christians, especially Christians in a city like Rome, they need to know the good news they are building their lives on is good news with a history. It was not invented in the last couple of decades. It was not the bright idea of a carpenter whose name was Jesus. And it certainly was not the bright idea of Jesus' followers. No, Paul says in verse 2, the gospel that I'm talking about is the gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament Scriptures. And over the last few months, we have seen part of what Paul has in mind. As, we've looked close, as we have looked closely at 1 Samuel, one of the things we saw again and again in that book was how much we were learning in advance about Jesus Christ. And that's something we find not only in 1 Samuel. We find it throughout the Old Testament. And the point is, the good news is not out-of-the-blue news. In a sense, the whole Old Testament is God's promise of a Savior. The good news Paul has devoted his life to is the fulfillment of God's promise. And that history gives weight to the gospel. Paul provides more of that weight when he says in verse 3, God's son as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. David was Israel's greatest king. And during his reign, God promised David that one of his descendants would be given a kingdom that would never end. And here Paul says, God's son came as a real man into a real family to receive what God promised to David. Again, the point is, there is history behind Paul's good news. And as great as that is, there is a problem with history. The problem is that while it may give something weight and substance, for many people, history also implies that something is old and irrelevant and dead. New is good, 
old is just out of date. But look what Paul says in verse 4. Having shown that the gospel of God has an impressive history, he says, and he's still talking about God's Son, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, yes, this good news has a weighty history. It's not out of the blue. And yet, it is something new. And we might read what Paul says and say, okay, the resurrection was something new. I get that. A man rising from the dead is pretty striking. But at the end of the day, so what? What changed because of the resurrection? Paul says, the world changed. The resurrection was not just a cool miracle and then things went on as normal. No, something was gained as a result of the resurrection. Things did not go on as normal. And this was the change. The Son of God was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. What does Paul mean by that? Does he mean that Jesus was not the Son of God until he rose from the dead and then he was appointed as God's Son? No, we can be sure that is not what Paul means. Why? Because in verse 3, he has told us about the earthly life of the Son before he died and rose. According to Paul, Jesus is not a man who one day became God's son. Jesus is God's son who one day became a man. So if God's son has always existed, even before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, what then does Paul mean in verse 4? Well, notice what Paul does not say. He does not say he was appointed the Son of God. The verse says he was appointed the Son of God in power. He was always the Son of God. From eternity past, he was with his Father. He shared in all of his Father's perfection and godness. During his life on earth, he never stopped being the Son of God. But, Paul is telling us, his resurrection brought a change. He became the Son of God in power. He was given a new and a more powerful position. Today, he reigns over this world. He is Lord. He is master and king of this world. He was already eternal and perfect and fully God. But now his father has given him a new status. The father has given him the name that is above every name. The father has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. 
Today the Son of God is able to save completely those who come to God the Father through him. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a big deal. And it's not a big deal in the sense that a fireworks display is a big deal. Think for a moment about the last fireworks display you saw. No doubt it was impressive. But it made no lasting difference to anything. It was just bright lights and noise and then nothing. Paul is telling us Jesus' resurrection was not like that. Everything changed when he rose. Things did not go on as normal. It was the miracle that changed the world forever. Today, the risen Jesus is in charge. He's Lord. The gospel of God is good news about the power of God's Son. These Christians in Rome are surrounded by the power of Rome. And they need to know where the real power is. It's in the hands of the Son of God. And you and I equally need to be reminded of that. The gospel, we believe, has the substance of history behind it. And... It's a message about the power of God's Son today. He reigns as Lord. That means even when God's laws are being flouted in our country, Jesus is Lord. It means that when a mosque is built at the end of your street, Jesus is Lord. It means that even when your difficult situation seems to get worse, Jesus is Lord. Paul goes on to say that the gospel of God is good news with the power to create and build. Paul has mentioned that the foundation for Christianity was laid in the Old Testament. But of course, Paul did not call it the Old Testament. Today, the first 39 books of the Bible are part of our Christian scriptures. But to the Jews, those 39 books are their scriptures. And at the time Paul was writing, that's how those books were viewed. It was the Jewish scriptures where God had announced his plans for a Messiah. And the first Christians were Jews. So you can appreciate there was a great danger at this time that people would make the mistake of thinking Christianity was only for Jews. But look again what Paul says in verse 5. Through him, that's through Jesus Christ, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. 
In these verses, we get our first mention of the people Paul is writing to. And they are, it seems, mainly Gentiles, non-Jews. The church in Rome is predominantly, it seems, made up of Gentiles. As the letter goes on, it will be clear that there are Jews in the church at Rome. But at this point, they seem to be in the minority. Now, Paul did not plant the church in Rome, and he has never yet visited the church in Rome. But Paul knows the message about Jesus is for them. It is not just for one nation. It's not just for people of one background. It's for all peoples and backgrounds. And it's not as if the Gentiles are second-rate Christians who've just somehow got in there but not quite fully in because they didn't begin life as Jews. That's not true. In verse 7, Paul says these Gentile believers are loved by God and called to be his holy people. That language is common in the Bible. It's the language God used in the Old Testament to refer to Israel. And here, Paul uses it to refer to non-Jews who believe in Jesus. So it is not physical birth that produces God's people. It's the good news about Jesus. That good news is creating a new community. That new community is made up of all nationalities and all backgrounds. And that is something that Paul and his fellow Christians celebrate. They don't try to hide it away. In verse 8, he says to the believers in Rome, your faith is being reported all over the world. In other words, the churches in other places are excited by the news that even in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, even there, men and women have bowed the knee to King Jesus. Paul and his fellow Christians know the good news about Jesus is a gift that's to be shared with everyone. The life that it brings is for everyone. Further down in verse 14, Paul says it's for both the wise and the foolish too. It breaks down barriers of nationality and intellect and any other barrier you can think of. And it creates one holy people of God. Paul goes on to explain to these people that he has often planned to come to Rome. But his ministry commitments in other places have prevented that happening. But he tells them that he prays for them regularly. And he's praying he'll soon make it to Rome at last. And look what he gives as the reason he wants to get to Rome in verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
In the context here, I think the spiritual gift Paul wants to give the Romans is a reminder of the gospel. That is confirmed in verse 15, where he says he's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. What that tells us is that the gospel is for Christians too. It's not just something we need to hear before we come to Jesus. The gospel doesn't just create new life in us, it builds new life in us. That's true for us as individuals, and it's also true for the church as a whole. The good news creates and builds God's new community. And so as Paul plans to visit these believers, he knows the best gift he can give them is the gift of the gospel. Yes, they have heard it before, but Paul knows they need to hear it again. Yes, it is the gospel that brings men and women into God's new community. It produces a harvest. And Paul certainly wants to reap a harvest of new believers in Rome. But Paul is equally convinced the gospel is what existing believers need to hear as well. It's the gospel that makes men and women strong once they are in God's new community. So as we move through this letter, and as we look at the gospel of God from lots of angles, don't listen and think, this is what unbelievers need to hear. As you listen, realize, this is what I need to hear too. This is what makes me strong. Remember, this letter, which is gospel from beginning to end, is a letter written to Christians. And Paul himself knows his own need for the gospel. In verse 12, he says he's looking forward to being encouraged by the faith of these brothers and sisters in Rome. When we join with other believers and remember the gospel together, that's how we encourage one another. True Christian encouragement is not about telling each other that we're wonderful. It's about reminding each other that the gospel is wonderful. It's powerful. And it's what we need. And isn't that what we're doing when we sing songs together? Yesterday, all of the musicians got together, and we saw in Scripture that when we sing songs, we are not just singing them up the way to God. The New Testament tells us we are also singing them to the brothers and sisters around us to teach and to build up those around us. And the more wholeheartedly we sing, the clearer the message to our brothers and sisters. The gospel is true and it's wonderful. As we hear the good news in word and in song, it makes us strong. It gives us strength to go out of here and live for the God of the gospel.
And finally, in Paul's introduction, he says, the gospel of God is good news with the power to save. Look again at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. That implies there are reasons he might be ashamed of it. It implies people have suggested he should be ashamed of it. It implies Paul has felt the temptation to be ashamed of it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have mentioned it. Over in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us some reasons why we might be ashamed of the gospel. He says people from a Jewish background find it to be a stumbling block. In other words, they find it to be an offense. That God would humble himself to die on a cross for his enemies, to pay for our sins. The Jews of Paul's day find that to be offensive, something to be ashamed of. And today, Muslims find it offensive. To them, the very idea is blasphemy. On the other hand, Greeks, Paul says, think the gospel is just foolish. It's not impressive enough. It seems like a defeat instead of a victory. And there are plenty of people today who respond to the gospel that same way. You're trying to tell me that I am helpless before God? You're trying to tell me I need to put my trust in an event that happened 2,000 years ago? And not even some impressive event, but an execution. Paul faced the same pressures as us to be ashamed of the gospel. But look why he says he is not ashamed of it. In verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It doesn't just tell us about the power of God, it is the power of God. Back in verse 4, Paul said, the risen Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power. And so we have to ask, how does he demonstrate that power? He has the power, but how does he release that power into this world? Through the good news. Through the announcement of what he did on the cross. That good news brings salvation to everyone who believes. Meaning salvation from God's wrath and punishment. When you and I share the good news, we don't tell people, Jesus died for your sins, now here's what you need to go and do about it. 
No, we tell people, Jesus died for your sins. Believe it. Put your trust in that truth. And when they do, they are saved. They don't need to go on a course and get a certificate. The message itself has life-saving power for everyone who receives it. The power of the gospel has been compared to a chili pepper. You can picture one of those little things. And when one of those little red peppers is set in front of you, it doesn't look like much. It looks bland and unimpressive. But if you take it and bite it, you will experience its power. You'll feel like you're eating fire. That's what the gospel is like. Look at the gospel from a detached distance and it may appear to you to be offensive. It may appear foolish. Or it may even appear a little interesting. But the moment you accept it and take it in personally as something that's for you, you will experience the life-saving power of God. That does not mean you'll hop around like you've eaten a chili. It means you will never be the same again. Charles Wesley used a different illustration. He described his spirit within him as a prisoner in a dark dungeon. But when the power of the gospel came into his heart, he says that dungeon flamed with light. His chains fell off and his heart was free. You and I have no need to be ashamed of the gospel. The good news you and I have to share has power to save from sin and death and hell. In verse 17, Paul says the same thing in a slightly different way. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, or the righteousness from God, is revealed. To be righteous means to be declared right by God. It means he accepts us, and he pours out all of his favor on us, instead of pouring out his wrath on us. And if you can picture it, the picture here is of standing before a judge. You stand there, and the judge has your status changed from guilty to not guilty, from condemned to in the right. How does God bring that about? Through the good news about Jesus. It does not come about by you and I trying harder to get ourselves in the right with God. We can never become righteous that way. And that's why Paul says at the end of verse 17, righteousness is by faith from first to last. God declares us in the right with him when we put our faith in what Jesus has done to make us in the right with God. 
When we talk about faith, it's not quite the same as saying, I believe this is true. It includes that, but it's more than that. It's similar to what we do when we stop just looking at that chili pepper and bite into it for ourselves. That's what it's like to put our faith in the gospel. We hear it, and then we respond by embracing it ourselves, not keeping it at arm's length. And as we do, we are saved from the punishment we deserve. And God declares us not guilty. Paul has introduced us to the gospel of God, and he has done it by telling us about its power. It's power that belongs to God's Son. It's power that comes to us through the message about God's Son. It's power that saves us and brings us into the people of God and makes us strong. And the final song that we're going to sing celebrates that power. We're going to join together in singing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. <laughs>